Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is 11-17-2021, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time we have this evening. We thank you for life, health, and strength. Father, we pray for Word is Truth wherever they may be. We pray for their health, their healing, and their comfort, asking that your will be done in our lives as we are here in this world. So, Father, we pray also as we open your word this evening that we will have wisdom, that we will come to understand the text before us, and that we will be able to apply that information to our lives. All this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. All right. Amen. So, we are... Um, no, our normal course of study is in Romans tonight. We are in Romans chapter 10 and verse 2. We will uh, get there uh, by way of some Q&A that we, we have a little time for. So I will open the floor. I know Dwight already, already has some thoughts, so we'll defer to him. And then if others have thoughts, please chime in as well. Go right ahead, Dwayne. All right, thank you. Um, I think my question, one of my questions that I wanted to talk about actually aligns with um, the scripture that we'll be studying, Romans 10 too. Oh, good, okay. Uh, my question, yeah, my question was along the lines of, I heard uh, somebody give a sermon and uh, made this assertion um, which I had heard before, but he made it as if it were brand new information. And that, he said that, you know, what is the difference between uh, Christianity and all other religions on earth? Mm -hmm. And I had heard various answers to that kind of question. Um, his take on it was that in all other religions, it's man seeking God. And in Christianity, it's God seeking man. Now, I know if we were to tie that back to a verse, we could go to John 16. And uh, 16, 8, for example, when he, the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And, um, and the verses that follow, explaining what, what did he mean by sin, righteousness, and judgment. So I guess my question is, um, we know the world is full of people who are seeking um, some sort of God, um, what, whatever that might be, and yet is Christianity one such that it's the other way around, that it's God seeking us? Um, and I can think of some Old Testament phrases that seem to indicate it's the former. In other words, it is it is people seeking God, but God saying, you know, seek me and you will find me. So what do you think? Yeah, uh, these types of um, phrases, uh, you know, I, they're only the tip of the iceberg, really. I, I don't really think there's anything wrong with that phrase because... Uh, I'm, but I just think it's not enough. I'll tell you what I 
why I say it's nothing wrong with it, because on the surface, yeah, um, Christ, uh, God the Father, is seeking us for us to be reconciled through the work of Christ, right? So salvation is free. It's not something we have to do, uh, although it kind of works. Well, and, Go ahead. And the other, the other word I would add to that is he, he clearly takes the initiative. He does. So he has taken the initiative the whole time with his plan. Yeah, yeah. I see. So that part of it where... God is seeking us. That is absolutely true. Although it's just not filling in the blanks uh, of how he is seeking us and what has he done to seek us. And, you know, we have to talk about the bad news and the good news. So all of that is, I wouldn't say it's not true that uh, God is certainly seeking us. But at the same time, when you look at when you look at uh, Romans three, where it says no no one seeks God, right? No one is righteous. No one's good. Many people will disagree with that because they'll say, "Well, I, I'm I sought God, you know, I I did." And so, on the one hand, people could say they seek God. On and the Bible says they don't. So how we reconcile that? Well, we reconcile that because uh, it is true that man in his unregenerate state would not seek God. And if God showed up, he would go the other way uh, because he is ruled by a spirit of disobedience and he would not naturally seek God. But given that God is working in men's hearts, through the Holy Spirit, it does appear that people will seek God when God intervenes. So God, the Holy Spirit, can turn the hearts of people to Christ. It can turn the hearts of people to uh, have an interest in spiritual matters, such as the bad news, the good news. And while man thinks, well, this is all me, uh, I'm I'm interested in God. I'm seeking him out. Really, it's God the Holy Spirit in you uh, seeking uh, God and trying to come to the understanding of what uh, salvation is. So those are, both are true, right? Man does seek God through the help of the Holy Spirit and man cannot seek God at all on, left to his own resources. He cannot. So I believe that, and that's why I said it's just these phrases, you know, they're, while they're cute, many times they don't explain the detail, which is most important. Now, I, I probably think, and I would guess, that that fella, whoever said that, probably would be wanting to explain what he meant by that. I think that's the thought, right? And I don't know if you listened more or, or heard him out, but I would think he would have something to say behind uh, God is seeking man. Would he? I would, yeah, I didn't listen to the whole thing. But um, 
in fact, I can't even remember if I can, if I remember where it was, so I could go back to it. Um, but I was just kind of surprised. He, he spent a, a good portion of the first part of his message, maybe a quarter of a third of it, making that point as if it were so surprising that now he's got your attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think the it's hard to, to judge whether or not it's effective what he's saying. Uh, I mean, it's I understand it. It's a true statement, uh, but it's incomplete. So I would certainly want to hear more from him around that before I would make any judgments. Yeah. But you know... I like what you said too about, you know, there is, um, going back to Romans 3, it, it clearly says no one seeks after God. Right. Um, but at the same time, we know that, that the Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of men to turn them towards God and there is the so it's almost it's almost both there is some seeking of God but it, God exposing himself at the same time through his spirit so there, it goes back to what we talked about about you know what's required to grow in grace it's cooperation and humility that's right there's a key thing it's not something you can do to earn your spiritual growth right that's right now, one thing to note, um, if we look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, if you want to know who, who you are in Adam, there's a good picture of it right here in, in these verses. And this isn't, there are no exceptions to this. This is, period, how we are in Adam. Not how some are, all of us are this way but God intervenes in our lives and that that is what makes all the difference I'm just going to read through it really really quick it says as for you you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. There's a, a description of who we are in Adam. Now, of course, most people would not describe themselves as such. I know that. <laughs> If I looked at that, I would say, oh, that, that's not me. I don't believe that's me. Of course, we would make those comments. But in reality, that's, that's what God says he sees of us. There, there we are. He has to intervene in order for us to become interested in God. We have no interest in God otherwise. And that's why it says there's none righteous, not even one. Now, there's none who seek after God. All have turned away. They have altogether become unprofitable. There is none who do good, not even one. We really need to believe those words like we believe the fact that Jesus came and died for our sins because those words are just as poignant, just as important as 
hearing what the good news is. So we can't we can't do anything for for God in in that state. God would not accept our good works, our good intentions, because we don't have any uh, any seeking that we may do. It will all be in in the religious sector. Um, it would not be God. You would be chasing after some man-made idea of God and, and some ritual that maybe if you do this, then God will, will be pleased with you. But really, truly, God says those things about us and they're true. There are no exceptions to the rule. And it, these are hard things to believe about ourselves, but it's the bad news. That's why we have good news. I'll pause. No, I like that. And, you know, the, there's a lot of information packed in just those first three verses of Ephesians. And um, even that one little phrase really, really gets my attention is that we were, by nature, children of wrath. Yes. Yes. Um, and you could add on, like the rest of mankind. So there, there's your little phrase that says there is no exclusion. Right. Yeah. And and also that this was our nature. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't even, you know, this is the nature that we are born with. That we don't acquire a nature by growing up and discovering sin. Excellent point, though. I mean, you brought it out, and that that point is that by nature we are deserving of wrath. It didn't say by practice. It didn't say we were especially bad. It's by our, the fact the fact that we have a nature that is sinful that we're born with. So, it, really, could we have done anything differently? And the answer is no. We couldn't have done anything differently. And if we did try to do something different, it wouldn't have mattered because there's none righteous. There's none who understands. There's none who are good. I, we think about who's good and who's not. We have to develop standards according to society. right? If people, if we ask who's good or bad, we would look at society we live in, the society we live in, and say, oh, these are the norms and standards for the society we live in. If I go break into your house, steal your television, <laughs> you'd probably be thanking me. <laughs> like, good, I was trying to get rid of that anyway. But you know, if I broke into your house and stole your television, I would be considered, that's a bad thing. Society says that's bad. And if I um, get caught stealing your television, this is very crude here. I'm making it up as I go along, so you know. So if I get caught, <laughs> if I get caught stealing your television, I'm going. I'm going to be locked up, put in jail, and they will tell me how how long, and I will have to abide by whatever rules they say. You know, about going to the court and being charged and sentenced and the whole nine yards. All of that says I've done something bad. 
in society. But God is saying it's not about doing something bad. It's by nature. That's where the problem is for you and me. So but my nature led me to do whatever I've done. It, I'm just like the rest. I, even though I'm saved, I was just like the rest of mankind. There was nothing special about me at all. Just like the rest. My story is no different than anybody else's story. So some people will say, yeah, but I was a, a, a huge sinner. I, let me tell you a testimony. My sin was worse than anybody's sin on the block. I did things that were so terrible, would make your toes curl. And all of that may be true. You did things, and, and I might be bristle at the fact of what you've done. I might. But really, to God, he's like, well, that's their nature. And they're going to do what their nature says they're going to do. He's not surprised by the fact that we sin. He's not upset by the fact that we sin. So we used to say, and I used to teach it this way, or say it a lot. I, don't, I haven't used these analogies in so long. That's why I say I used to say. But if a pear tree, if it's a pear tree, are we surprised that it produces pears? Should we be surprised that a pear tree produces pears? I will pause. I would hope not. <laughs> right. I don't, good evening everybody. I don't think we should, nobody should be surprised that it produces pears. But um, I, I just have a, a further point is I think it's, uh, it's a very, uh, as far as religion goes versus the grace of God and what the Lord did for us from eternity past is, uh, so if there's no one righteous, uh, how do people go about becoming righteous? And there's a lot in between that. Um, there's, you know, what we call the basics, but there's a lot of information and that's where so many people lose their way. And they develop, like you said, uh, I was the worst sinner. They mm. give testimonies about their experience. You know, I was, I was a drunk or whatever your inclination in your whole sin nature was. So the, the point between no one is righteous and becoming acceptable to God how does one become acceptable? Wow, there's a lot in between there. Yes, there is. <laughs> well, one, one thing is, it's never our righteousness or our attempts at doing good things that makes us righteous. For salvation, God provides all the righteousness we need in order to be acceptable in his sight. We don't even have to do anything good in order to, to, to be right with God. Now think about this. We're already bad because of our nature. And we can't do anything good to prove to God that we um, 
uh, you know, in, in exchange for, for him giving us salvation. We can't do anything good because we can't do anything good anyway. Even if we wanted to do something good, we couldn't do anything good. So, for instance, we would be surprised if it was a pear tree and it was producing pears, but all of a sudden we saw a peach on that pear tree. Now, <laughs> we should sit up and take notice. Now, that's something. A peach and it's producing all these pears and all of a sudden it produces a peach. Now, that would be odd. And that's what God is saying. You can't do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Your nature is a pear tree. You cannot produce a peach even if you wanted to. You couldn't do it because of your nature. So the good that we do after we're saved, now you have to be completely saved before you're able to, to do that which is good, according to God. Now, like I said, according to society, I stole, you broke into your house, stole your TV, and they might put me in jail for that. And uh, after I get out of jail, supposedly I'm okay, right? There's no more problem. They're not, police are not looking to pick me up now. I've done my time. I've satisfied their requirements. Don't have to worry about it. And that's, but when it comes to God, he's not satisfied with us because uh, all of our sins, whatever we have done because of our nature, he has to manage. And he does that through Jesus Christ. So not only did Jesus Christ pay for every sin we would ever commit on planet Earth, or if you're in the space station, wherever you are, he paid for every sin. And then we have to think about that word propitiation, which is or atoning sacrifice. So that is to say that not only was Christ judged for those sins, but what does God the Father who judged Christ for those sins think about what Christ did? Does he think Christ did a good job? Is he satisfied with the work of Christ in our behalf? Is his justice satisfied? It would be like I broke into your house, right? Stole your TV. Maybe I stole all your jewelry too. Maybe I shouldn't use this analogy because if somebody breaks into your house, you're going to say it's me. Well, let me just say, let's finish the analogy and then erase the thought. Broke into your house, stole all your jewelry, all your money, everything. And now you saw me do it because I won the camera. But then when I got arrested and everything, I know somebody down at the police station. So rather than going to jail, they say, that's Doug, we're gonna, we're gonna just let him go. I'm sure he, he's probably not the one, even though you got it on the camera. So what, what pro so they gave me, they, it, that was their justice. But if you look at it, you wouldn't be satisfied with their justice. You would say, well, wait a minute. You're letting him go and he did that? He did something wrong and you're letting him go? Well, in the same way, God the Father looks at Christ and, and he has to evaluate whether or not Christ did 
satisfy his just demands for sin. And if he did, then he will sit back. He won't lean forward. He will sit back and say, I'm I'm satisfied with the work of Christ in your behalf. So here you come along in time in 2021 and you are acting according to your nature. And what are you doing according to your nature? You're cranking out sins, just like that pear tree. You're producing pears. What does the father say? I'm upset. No, he says, I'm satisfied with the work of Christ in your behalf. I'm not worried about your sins. My justice isn't crying out to punish you. My justice is satisfied with the work of Christ. So here we are, you know, like we got our hands covering our head like there's going to be a rock going to hit us or something. We're walking around like, oh, I know I've sinned. I know God is after me. I know he hates sin. Yeah, he hates sin. That's why he judged all of your sins in Christ. And he's satisfied. So when it comes to salvation, we don't even have to do anything that's good to get saved. It's free. That's what it means. It doesn't cost anything. First of all, we can't do anything good anyway, even if we wanted to. So that is just a brief understanding of the the bad news and the good news. Just imagine for people who don't even believe in Christ, and God knows he already knows that they're not going to believe in Christ. He knows that they're going, to, they're going to reject Christ, but he still paid for all of their sins too. And he's satisfied. The Father's satisfied with the work of Christ on those people, on their behalf, for all the sins they could crank out. And there's a lot of sins. And yet, he's not crying out for justice for any of those sins because justice has already been met. Well, he can relax and say, I, I'm not worried about sin. But that's one side of it, because there's a whole other side of it, which Fred was talking about, and that's righteousness. So Christ imputes the righteousness, his good works that he did while he was here on earth. He imputes that to us. And we, having done no good, receive the imputation of his, we get the credit for his good works while he was here by just believing in Christ. It doesn't, we didn't do anything. Simply, it's really simple. And believing is not works. So those are some gospel things. And th- th- those are hard, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say they're hard to believe. I would say it takes God the Holy Spirit to make those things come alive for you. On the surface, People just can't believe it. They're like, I don't see that. There must be something I have to do. There must be some repenting or feeling sorry or for my sins. I I, got to, he wants me to be engaged in some way. Doesn't he? Doesn't he want me to stop doing those sins in order to be saved? I mean, he knows they're bad. It's hard for the human mind to conceive the grace in that manner. For as far as we're concerned, it makes sense. It makes more sense that God sees me as a sinner that I must reconcile and have a good positive attitude. And or if I don't, 
then obviously I, I can't possibly be saved. If I'm not doing anything good to counter the things I did that were bad, I can't possibly be saved. What, what kind of attitude is that? God would never accept a person who doesn't have an attitude of wanting to do works. So, now I'm not saying good works shouldn't, you shouldn't want to do them. That's not my point, but I'm saying what is required. And for salvation, nothing is required. If you bring something, and you'll be rejected because you didn't receive it on God's terms. It's like it's scripture says, and if it is by grace, then it is no longer by works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You cancel grace when you introduce works, right? So that's a Romans 11, 6. Yeah, you, you can't have it both ways. You Either you believe, and you know, it's so simple to believe in Christ, really, once you understand it. It's simple to believe. But it it takes God the Holy Spirit to, to properly understand it, to work through all the nuances that we just talked about and understand why there is such a thing as bad news. I will pause, and we're going to, closing comments. Well, so we're going to get started. And you know, you have some notes. Hopefully you um, are ready with your notes. Let me open mine. And what we are going to discuss here is we have an example of Israel. This is a perfect example for our previous discussion. Because Israel certainly did exactly what we're talking about. They wanted to pursue God based on the law. And as we say, in, uh, you know, they were barking up the wrong tree. It's a hunting analogy, I would guess. They were barking up the wrong tree. Imagine dogs treeing a coon or something like that. And we did go coon hunting when we were younger. I think dad, my dad took us coon hunting. And the dogs track this coon all the way down and they, the coon is running through the woods and finally the coon decides, I'm gonna run up this tree. And the dogs chase the coon and they smell right where his path was and right to the tree and they see him up there and they just start this crazy barking. And when the hunter, who's even farther behind because he can't keep up with all that, he, he, he hears these dogs going crazy and he knows they got him treed. So what does he do? He comes to that to where that is and he shines the light up there and boom, shoots the raccoon out of the tree. And that's how it should go. Although, what if the dogs were barking up the wrong tree? It would foil the whole plan. That's what people do when they try to approach God on their terms. God says, you have to, if you want the salvation that I designed, that I planned, that I had my son die and be judged for, 
you got to do it on my terms if you want that salvation. People are like, no, that's I don't have to do that. I could do it my way. Whatever makes me feel good. If I'm satisfied with how I do it, then uh, that's going to work for me. God is particular, and he ought to be because he has standards. His standards are higher than ours. So we, for us to judge what's good or bad, we can't because we're already lost when we start. Just like we read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. So hopefully you have some notes. Let's read about Israel. We're in Romans chapter 10 and verse 2. It says, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Uh, in your notes, certainly Israel was zealous for God. I can testify that there are other religious groups out there, and they also are zealous for God too. Although some may not worship the same God we do, they are just as zealous. Just because someone is excited about God, it does not mean they are saved by grace, the grace of God. To the point, religious people need the gospel too. That's the point to make. And when People looked at, the, looked at Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law. They just revered them. They just imagined that oh, these people are close to God. They're so close to God. I'm so far away, but they are doing everything God wants them to do. So they were revered. But when Christ came on the scene, we're going to see what his attitude was toward these professional religious people. Why professional? Because that's all they did. Walked around trying to figure out what good they could do, how they could keep the law, and how they felt encouraged and satisfied that they were keeping the law and and their, their satisfaction they imposed on God. They said, well... Uh, if we're satisfied with our works, God must also be satisfied. And they were wrong. We'll get to that later. So let's break it down. This, we got three phrases that we're going to deal with, and then we're done. The first one is, for I can testify about them. So the first one is certainly the Apostle Paul can testify. But why do I say he can testify? Because he was a Jew. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, and he was a he was the a Pharisee of Pharisees, says Philippians chapter three. He was like an exceptional. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees means he was a teacher of Pharisees, and for for him to be a Pharisee alone would be exceptional, but he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And as far as the law, he said, I was blameless. In other words, he thought he was. He thought, man, if I'm going to teach Pharisees, I really got to be blameless. So we can see that Paul had some testimony about his previous life. He understood his previous life. But the rest of this point is, but we should be reminded that what we see here is God's testimony through the apostle. 
So what we are about to understand is not just Paul's opinion or Paul's point of view because he was a Pharisee and he has very good knowledge of how Israel and Jews think. That's not it at all. God could have used a poor farmer, anybody, to tell what his testimony was. But no, he, he did choose the Apostle Paul to speak through. But even though what we're going to hear from the Apostle Paul is on point, it's not on point because Paul is so exact in what he does. It's on point because God, the Holy Spirit, is using the Apostle, speaking through the, the Apostle's voice, through his pen. So this... You know, I know we can say, yeah, and so what, what did Paul say? What did Paul say? Well, I, I know people don't like some of Paul's writings because Paul's so direct when it comes to grace and righteousness and salvation. And it's so clear. And not even counting what we, when we start talking about the deeper things, well, when, when Paul does. But notice, it is not the Apostle Paul that we should be in awe over. It is the Lord, through the Spirit of truth, that is speaking to us through the Apostle Paul's writings. Just to keep that in mind. That's the first point. So Paul's estimation of what Israel is, not necessarily that big a deal. God's estimation through Paul, this is the word of God, is a big deal. Point B. Paul is certainly talking about, uh, talking about Israel here. So when he says, for I can testify about them, he's talking about Israel, just so you know. He's not, he's not speaking to Gen about Gentiles. He's talking about his people. It's like he said, my people in the previous verse. Those who he described Israel. He's telling it straight. We're going to hear the straight truth from these words. And if they are in this category that he's talking about them, and like in verse 1 where he says, my prayer to God is that uh, Israel will be saved. So if, if they need saving, that means they're lost. That means they don't have the right gospel. They have a gospel, but it's a false gospel. They are not in the church and they are not saved. I just want to point out 1 Corinthians 10, 32 through 33. Let's do it. 1 Corinthians 10, 32 and 33. So these are important verses here. Uh, so it, here, here in verse, I'll, I'll go to 31 just to be sure. And this is about causing people to stumble and so forth, right? So, so, what, so verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And here it is, verse 32, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. So there are three categories of individuals here. One, Jews, that's the same as Israel. Two Greeks, which is also representative of all Gentiles here, spoken of as Greeks, or the Church of God. So this entity is 
the church of God, which we know to be the church, right? That's once you believe in Christ, you are baptized into the body of Christ, also known as the church. So Christ said in Matthew 16, on this rock, I will build my church. So it's a called out assembly of believers. That's what the church is. So, and it's a saved group. Everybody in Christ is saved. They have to come through the gospel. So those other two groups, however, are lost. If anybody in those groups, Jews or Gentiles, believes in Christ, they become part of the church in this age. That's why in Christ there is no Jew, there is no Gentile. That's what the scripture says. Galatians 3.28. There is no Jew, there is no Gentile in Christ. So what happens to, to them? They were Jews, they were Gentiles. Well, now they're in the church and they're part of who Christ is. So do not cause anyone. So if you wanted to divide the world up into two classes of people, saved on the one hand, lost on the other, you could do it, but it doesn't mean you know who they are. But I mean, it's true. There's two, two kinds of people in this world. And somebody might say, yeah, I know Jews and Gentiles. Wrong. That's not what I'm going to say. Two kinds of people in this world. They're those who are saved and those who are lost. It's really just that simple. Who's in the lost category? Jews and Gentiles. If you are a Jew or if you are a Gentile, according to the way God is seeing things, you are still lost. If you're in the church, God is saying you are saved. Now, I don't mean local church. Now, you could say, well, I'm going to go join a church tomorrow since that is what you're saying. No, that's not what I'm saying. Because the baptism of the Spirit is how you get into the body of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For we are all baptized by one, in, by one Spirit into the body of Christ. To one body. That's, that's what he's saying. That's how we get into the body. And how do you do that? By upon believing in Christ you are automatically baptized by the Holy Spirit in this age. So, so then verse 33, even as I try to please everyone in every way. So now, are there any more categories? No, not according to what this says. This says, I try to please everyone. So of all the people on earth, that's including everyone. So Paul doesn't want to cause anybody who is a Jew or a Greek, or even he doesn't want to cause anybody trouble in the church so when you go when we get to romans 14 and 15 you're going to see that people in the church can be weak there could be disputes of of people in the church and so we'll get to that but paul is saying no i i want to make sure i do not cause anyone to stumble and he just names the categories of people here so anyway that is my point to make that he's talking about Israel and and they are not in the church if he's talking about them from the standpoint of Israel. Or we can go back to verse 1 and we can realize, no, Israel is lost. And when he say Israel, we're not just talking about the nation Israel. We're talking about those who, the majority of people in Israel, especially the leadership, have rejected Christ. So, point C. 
Here we will find the root cause of Israel's failure through their many years. And it's probably um, 1,700 years since Israel was inaugurated as a nation. 1,700, circa 1,700 years. And why they do not have the right to raise the objections they have in the previous chapters. Listen, if Israel is, um, if what we're seeing in them is that this cause, the fact that they uh, diverted from grace and went to trying to keep the law and be recommended to God, once they did that, they, they, they now have turned their backs on God. And God has disciplined them many times throughout their history. And their failures, being disciplined and coming back into power and then being disciplined again and coming back into power and being... Dis all that back and forth is because of this root cause. They've failed to believe in the Messiah to come, even though their entire culture screamed that there was a Messiah to come. They refused to believe the message. And how did that happen? Through the Holy Spirit. Point D, this verse is confirmation that chapter 9 was about Israel's objections. Now, why do I say this? Um, Israel, from when we started reading in chapter 8 at the end, where after he told us, you know, uh, you know, those he foreknew, he also predestined, and, uh, and those he predestined, he also called to be formed to the image of his son. And then it goes on and say, those he, he, uh, he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified. And I may not have all that right, but that's the part that I'm, of Romans 8 I'm referring to. I might have butchered some of that. But right after he says that, he starts talking about, well, who would bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? Who would object to this? He's beginning to lay the groundwork to show that Israel objects to God's calling of the church, and which gave rise to chapter 9. It also gave rise to those famous verses, those classic verses in Romans 8 at the end where it says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution and the sword, you know, all those things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That is still talking about how Israel would separate us from God, um, but they can't. We've been called in Christ and they can't undo it. There's nothing they can do. Now, of all the people who were the church's enemies in the first century, who was it? It was Israel. It even says it in Romans 11. As, for the, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sakes. They are enemies. And they're God's people from the standpoint of his calling. In other words, they were chosen. God does have a purpose for them. He, even though he disciplined them, brought them back in power, disciplined them, bought them. Yeah, he went through all that. And now they rejected their Messiah. 
there's still a future for Israel. So he says, but on account of the patriarchs, they are loved. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob regarding Israel. He's not going to renege on those promises. So, yeah, they're enemies. What would, what would they seek to do? Persecute you. What happened to all of the early Christians as a result of the Jewish persecution of the church? Many of them were martyrs. Many of them. And it wasn't only Israel's persecution. They got the ball rolling, but Rome picked up on it and continued to persecute the church. All of these Roman emperors, they got one was just worse than the next one toward Christians. Nero was famous for blaming Christians for calamities and turning people against Christians. So anyway, let's get back to our notes. They don't have any right to raise objections. And these verses confirm that Paul's whole point to make in, in chapter 9 was to tell Israel that you, you don't have any right to object. First of all, they don't even believe. The Messiah came, they rejected the Messiah. So Paul says, I can testify about them. I know, I know where they stand. And God used Paul to teach us about what the root cause of Israel's failure really was. Point E, how can Israel fulfill their mission when they reject salvation by grace and are lost? Now, imagine, they're supposed to go out and tell the world about God's salvation by grace, and yet they haven't received it themselves. And the answer is they cannot. How can they do it? They cannot. How can they fulfill their mission? They cannot do it because they first have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we read Revelation 12, 17, I think we've read it before, but I'll turn to it again. What do we see in the tribulation? The church is gone now. And what is the character of these people who are in the tribulation? It's, the, it's Israel. For 12, 17, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman. The woman is Israel. And went to make war with the, against the rest of her offspring the remnant, as we would say, of her offspring, the last part, that's Israel. Those, who, who are they? Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So there you have it. These are Jews, but these are Jews who believe in Jesus and they hold fast, even under persecution, even under stress, they hold fast their testimony about Jesus. And this is the greatest persecution, the greatest time of trouble since there was a nation. And yet, they, they're doing their jobs. Notice, it is important that they believe in Christ before they are able to preach the everlasting gospel to those who are in the world. It is important that they themselves believe it. Uh, we, we'll, we can't say enough about that. Point number two. So, so it says, uh, for I can testify about them that 
point number two is that they are zealous for God. So I just looked up the word zealous. And it sounds phonetically just like zealous. The D and the Z make the Z sound. Zealous. That's what it sounds like in the Greek. So it means excitement of mind, ardor, fervor, or spirit of spirit. Then it gives all these different definitions for the word. Zeal, ardor, embracing, pursuing, defending anything, zeal in behalf of a, uh, of, for a person or a thing, the fierceness of in, indignation, punitive zeal, an envious and contentious rivalry, jealousy. All this comes from Thayer. So you, you could see that they have a zeal, passion, a, a motivation, uh, a, a fervor for God. And that's what we should note in points, point B. They're not zealous for some earthly thing. They have an idea that they are zealous for God. We're talking about Israel here. For sure, what we want to say about them is God did show up in their culture, in their history. God showed that he was uh, with this people through miraculous signs, wonders, miracles. He freed them from Egypt miraculously. He, When Christ came, he did all kinds of signs, wonders, and miracles. Well, even, even before that is when uh, they were in the desert, in the wilderness. Uh, when they fought battles, God miraculously was with them. Uh, I can think of parting of the Red Sea, all the different things. Israel knew God was behind them. And there was no doubt about it. They were zealous for God. Point C. This is a classic case of putting the cart before the horse. And we've all heard that. Or, or another way we say it is, first things must be first. When we look at Romans 3, 9 through 12, and I just want to, not that we haven't read these verses, but uh, we should always make sure. Um, there's little points here that we may have missed. For instance, what shall we conclude then? Are we, do we have any advantage and when Paul says this, he's saying we Jews, because we have the law, because we have the covenants, because all of those things have been given. We God has shown up in our culture. He has uh, witnessed that he's in our culture. He's told us what to do. He's given us his law. Don't we have some sort of advantage? I mean, wouldn't you think we do, right? That's what Paul is uh, postulating. And what is his answer? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. So you don't get a pass. Yes, God showed up, showed up in your culture, but you, just like everybody else, have to put your faith in Christ. You have to realize your condition. The law shows you you're dead. You need a savior and you have to put your faith in the savior to come. And they refuse to do that. So notice, uh, not at all, for we have already made the charge, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. So there is no difference between a Gentile 
or a Jew. Remember we talked about the nature earlier? Because that's the problem. It's not uh, that we can't do good and man will say, yeah, no, that was a good work. Or if you save somebody from drowning or you're a hero, somebody will say, that's good. And it, certainly it is good. But when it comes to God, uh, salvation, uh, he does not consider anything we do good because we have a nature that is evil and that is in control of us. As it is written, there is no one righteous. When he says, not even one, he's referring to the Jew. <clears throat> if we were to underline not even one, you could say, well, not even one person. I mean, that's clear. But he's really talking about the Jew. Because they think that they're righteous. They think that they can be righteous because the law. And even if they fail, they will say, well, somebody's righteous. Because somebody has kept the law and is righteous before God. Not even one can do it. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. And here we have it again. Not even one. And, and then if we jump down to the verses in 19 and 20, this is a slap in the face. It's clear who he's talking about. Verse Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Verse 20, therefore, no one, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. That is a slap in the, in the face of Israel. Because that's exactly what they thought, that they were going to be declared righteous in God's sight by their works of the law. But rather, through the law, they become conscious of sin. What are they supposed to know? What is the Holy Spirit trying to tell them? That they're sinners. They need a savior. Their nature is bad. And they resist that. They said, no, no, no. God will have to, he will have to pronounce me righteous by the, because I have done and everything I could to keep the law. So back to our notes here. So they are zealous for God. We said they are zealous, and we could read how they finally do get righteous. If you keep reading to verse 22, it talks about uh, how Christ is our righteousness, and by faith, they can become righteous and justified. Point D, careful here, or I should say cautious. Their failure is being repeated by many religious systems and loud voices today. Again, remember, first things first. If that's what Israel had to learn, that's the lesson they needed. They put the cart before the horse. They thought they could do works and God would just excuse them from salvation. He would just automatically save them because of their good works. They were wrong. They were lost. In fact, that's lost thinking. So, I would say a lot of religious systems out there today are they're touting Israel like they were super successful. They were trying they're trying to they go back and they read the Old Testament 
And for some reason, yeah, they see Israel failed, but they think for some reason that Israel is successful. And they try to emulate Israel. They're infatuated with how they conducted themselves and did how they kept the law and all these different things. And they feel like that's a model for how they should behave, how they should be, you know, zealous for God based on the works that they think they're doing. So all the religious systems are out there trying to emulate Israel. And they're speaking very loudly. They got a lot of attention because people think, remember we talked about grace earlier, how it's foreign to the ear. And you tell people, yeah, you don't have to, you're dead by nature. You're, you're, you can't, you're sinful by nature. It's not your fault per se. It's your nature. It's hard for people to understand that. They just feel like, well, God will respect me when I do good things. God is a good God. So therefore, if I do something good, he will respect it. No, God says, my standards are way higher than you can imagine. So you just better listen to what I'm telling you about your nature. It's the problem. Your nature is the problem. And yet, that's the bad news. So be careful here, because if we don't, if we put the cart before the horse, when it comes to this, the consequences are that we'll be lost. That's what God said. He said Israel is lost. Don't follow their behavior. Don't follow that pattern. A lot of churches have uh, substituted the law for whatever their form of morality is. What their, what their works are, what they say you should do and what's good. If you do that, then you could become a part of our church. If you maintain these things, you could, you could be a, a, a good upstanding citizen in our church, but it doesn't mean that you have eternal salvation, eternal life. Point E. Well, I better hurry hurry up a little bit. I see it's nine something here. Point E, what do you think God thinks about all of their religious zeal, devotion, fervor, Bible study, prayers, I could add, all kinds of stuff they're doing. What do you think God thinks about all that in defense of his law over grace? What do you think? What What's God's attitude? Does God say, well, you know, I know they're trying hard. I see they're, they're dedicated. I mean, they're really, really working hard. Does God say, okay, that moves me? Nope, 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 nope. Not at all. Not even, the needle doesn't even move a little bit. Because God rejects that. We're going to look at some scriptures really quick. Matthew 15, 8 and 9. Let's go there. Matthew 15, 8 and 9 says, 8 says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They just give lip service. They really don't have the capacity to do what I want them to do because they got natures that are evil. They can't help it. So what do they do? They exercise some hypocrisy here. And their lips are saying one thing, 
but their heart is saying something else. So they look good on the outside, but on the inside they don't. So what is the result? Verse 15, 9, they worship me in vain. In vain. What does that mean? It means for nothing, for no good purpose, for no good reason. Uh, it doesn't move the needle for God one iota. So their worship, all of their religious prayer and rituals and on and on is for nothing. It's for naught. Their teachings are merely human rules. This is they all they're doing is rehearsing things that they think are God's will, and it's really not. God did never He never told them to do those things when it comes to their salvation. First things first. First you get saved, then you can worship God. You can't worship God unless you're saved. Like our verse in Romans chapter uh, John four. Father seeks worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. These are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Spirit and in truth. That's how you have to worship. You can't just decide what rules God will will accept. That's idolatry, in fact. And then verses 13 and 14, he replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots he says, leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. These are not gracious things being said about these people. But they need to wake up, don't they? That's, that's the issue. Because it's important. Matthew 23, 13. Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven and people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Now that's bad. Remember, I, they're supposed to be leading people to salvation. First things first. They won't even go in themselves. They shut the door. They won't teach it. And then they, they won't go in and they won't let anybody else go in because they'll say that that is not true. I mean, remember, their role is supposed to be um, God's witnesses to the world. And then if you read all of these woes, none of them are flattering for the, the Jews. None of them. And these are the leaders Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about people who are on the fringes the prostitutes, the sinners, the drug dealers. He's not talking about them. He's talking about the religious leaders here. The ones who are wearing the long robes, the ones that people look up to. That's what he says, 26. 20. You could read all of these woes for yourself. I've just picked out a few. Blind Pharisee, now that's already insulting. We just said what happens to the blind, didn't we? We said, he says, leave them. It's the blind leading the blind. They'll both fall into the ditch. Blind Pharisee, he says, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. Remember, first things first. That's what you got to do. You got to first let God work on the inside. Let him save you. Let him justify you. Let him impute righteousness to you. All of that, first things first. 
Right? It's the same gospel that saves us, that saves the Jew. There's no exception. And then verse 28, um, in the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So, yeah, these nice flowing robes you got, you, you, these you know, everybody looks up to you and this, and you're saying all these pious things and patting people on the head and telling them they're blessed and all this stuff. And yet, on the inside, you're hypocritical. You're filled with hypocrisy and wickedness. This is what Christ thought. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, what he thought of the religious leaders of the day, of his day. So this, this is definitely noteworthy. So we got a few more points to go. I don't know if we're going to finish them all in two minutes. So if we don't, that's okay. We will stop and we'll continue next week. Point number three, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. This is our point number three. So they have zeal. They have this religious fervor, this desire uh, to... Uh, to, to serve God, to do what God wants, but they're not saved. God doesn't think much of it. Point number three, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Now we know why. So point A is zeal can be good. It can. There's no problem with zeal when the person is saved by grace and is excited and motivated about learning and walking with the spirit of truth. There's no problem with that. We should want to be motivated to do what God wants us to do when God has equipped us with eternal life and salvation. Now we have the right motives. We're not working to be saved. We're already saved. We're not working to prove we're saved or prove we're good because we know we weren't good, but we're going to let God teach us what his good is and how he wants us to walk in truth. The only way you can do that is by the Spirit. So... You can't do it on your own. Point B, what could Israel tell us about the spiritual life when they have resisted the Spirit and turned their backs on Christ? John 1.12 says it. says he, was, uh, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Who's his own? The Jews. The ones who should have known who he was but they, re they would not receive him. He came, what did they do? They crucified him. He came to his own, but they crucified him. Point C, do not take counsel about the spiritual life from those who reject grace or eternal security. Now, eternal security is the gospel. If a person doesn't believe in eternal security, what is it that they don't believe? They don't believe the gospel. That's what they're telling you. They're saying, no, no, there's got to be some works to maintain your salvation. Well, if you've you got to have works to maintain your salvation, then you don't understand that salvation is not by works. I mean, it's pretty clear. Salvation is free. And if you want to attach some sort of obligation on the person's part, then you don't understand that it's free. So then what does that mean? If you don't believe in eternal security, you don't believe in the gospel, simply put. We're not going to play games about it. We're just going to say it straight. Don't take counsel from them. Don't tell them, don't let them tell you what, what being close to God is and, 
and how you should, what you should do and how you should pray. And they can't tell you about salvation when they're not saved. That's like Israel, right? Israel rejects Christ. So what? what, what can they tell us? They have turned their backs on the light. So where are they headed now? In the darkness. Until they come around to believe in then Christ. That's what we read in Revelation 12, 17. They're going to be that light on the shining, on the shining light on the hill. Then they'll be the lighthouse. Point D. Well, you know, Galatians is a good verse. And I, I could read that. Um, we read it last week, so I'm going to let you read it. Point D, knowledge. Right? What do we mean by knowledge? It says they lack this. So what could Paul be talking about? He's primarily talking about the bad news and then the good news. So they don't have the knowledge primarily of the bad news. I mean, because if they think that they can be righteous by keeping the law, they don't know what the bad news is. They don't have the proper knowledge. How do they not get that knowledge? It's because they refuse to allow the Holy Spirit to teach them. Like it says in Acts chapter 7, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. Just as your forefathers did, so do you. I think it's Acts 7.51 if you wanted to look that reference up. It's there. There is a pattern of resistance of the Holy Spirit. Well, resisting the Holy Spirit, then you, you are not going to get the knowledge of who you are in Adam. You're not, you're not going to be able to understand why there's no one who can do good. You're not going to understand your true nature of sin. So we'll end with this point and we'll finish the last few points next week. I already am over. So here's the last point. Point E. Nicodemus came to talk about the kingdom of God. But Christ said, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. There it is. Nicodemus had a whole agenda. And remember, Nicodemus was a Sadducee. No, I'm sorry. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. And he came to see Christ. And he wanted to talk about the kingdom of God. He, he was very impressed with who Christ was. He says, man, nobody can do the things you do except God is with him. But notice Christ jumps right to this, this point about the kingdom of God and how Nicodemus needed to be born again. First things first. Don't put the cart before the horse. You want to talk about the kingdom of God? Then you must be born again. You won't even be able to understand what I'm talking about otherwise. So this is part of it. This is, this is an important part as we get to these next few verses next week, we'll combine them with, uh, with uh, verse 3. Uh, when we get to these next few points, rather, we'll combine them with verse 3 next week. We'll talk more about our behavior and how we should conduct ourselves. And instead of mimicking Israel, we want to use their failures and not repeat them. So let's bow our heads as we close this week. We'll talk more about these important matters. Even though they have to do with the gospel, they are very important to the way we think about unbelievers, our motivation, all those things are important. 
we will continue with this next week. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father. We're so pleased as ambassadors for Christ. And you have made us ministers of reconciliation. Father, we are proud to take part in this most prestigious and needful, necessary uh, pursuit, whereas we want to help you save those who are lost in this world. We want you to use us in any way possible that we might be able to save some. That we are uh, living in a world where people are perishing all around us every day. We are rubbing shoulders with people who are spiritually dead and under the wrath of God. And they just don't know not only what the bad news is, but they don't know the good news. Father, we pray that you will use us. Uh, send those uh, people to us so that we can speak the words of life to them. We thank you for giving us this information and we pray that we will be uh, use the word properly. We will rightly divide the word of truth and, and be able to uh, give a reason for the hope that is within us. All of this we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.